on the 2nd of December 1967, a young woman was run over by a speeding car in Cape Town, South Africa. One and a half kilometers away, a 54-year-old man lay in a hospital bed fighting for his life. Her death would give him a second chance. On Saturday, the 2nd of December, we got a call. So we all went to the hospital and um, started preparation in the theatres. This is Dean Friedman. She was there that night, almost 50 years ago, where the world's most famous medical operation was performed, the transplant of a human heart. And Dr. Christian Barnard, the man who held the knife, became a class A celebrity. We started preparing for such an operation approximately 10 years ago. But this is not a story about him. It is the story of a much less famous man, a black man, who some say should have been the one getting all the credit. His name was Hamilton Nagy. The story of Hamilton Nagy is a rebroadcast of our episode, The Heart Problem. It was first released in December 2017, on the 50th anniversary of the first ever heart transplant. Today, we include it as part of the Revisits series. My name is Neo Rakhajani. Neroli Price tells the story. During the Cold War, everything was a competition between East and West. From who won medals at the Olympics to who would be the first in space. 1967 was no different. The race was on. And this time the arena wasn't sport or space, but surgery. And in the race for the first human heart transplant, South Africa was an unlikely contender. I was still a student in training and I was assigned to assist um, operating the heart-lung machine. Here is Deanie Friedman again. She helped operate the heart-lung machine on that night. There was no defined definition of death in those days. This was key to the success of the operation because there was no distinction between brain death and heart death in South Africa, so you could legally die while your heart was still beating. This legal detail gave Dr. Christian Barnard an advantage, but it also raised some ethical concerns. So the patient was brain dead, but he doesn't, didn't want people to say that the heart was still beating on its own. So he had them switch off the artificial respirator and allowed the heart to stop beating on its own, which took about 12 minutes. As soon as the heart stopped beating, it was a race against time. The team scrambled to remove the heart before it started dying. For the transplant to work, 
they had to be both quick and careful. They cut out the heart, placed it into a bowl and carried it to another body in the next room. The body it would give another chance. As the heart warmed up, it started to quiver with life. Professor Barnard then said, it's going to work. The world's first heart transplant has been performed. Medical history has been made in South Africa. Newspapers everywhere carry banner headlines and from medical men as far away as the Soviet Union, there is a claim for the dramatic breakthrough. The famous Dr. Christian Barnard had accomplished the impossible and the glory belonged to him. Or did it? Over the years, there have been rumours that a black man called Hamilton Naki not only assisted in the operation, but did it himself. Although this sounds like some kind of crazy cover-up, remember that it was apartheid. A black man would never have been allowed to do surgery, let alone the first human heart transplant. But if he was actually involved, the cover-up kind of makes sense. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the operation, and for some, it is not yet decided who we should be celebrating. The white man, Christian Barnard, or the black man, Hamilton Naki? The official version celebrates Barnard. A second hospital in Cape Town has just been named after him. But at the University of Cape Town, where they both worked, the name Hamilton Naki has started appearing on posters and banners of protesting students who are fighting for free and decolonized education. The students want all of us to know his name. They have unofficially renamed buildings after him and posted photos of him all over Facebook. One of these photos has a line of text written on it. In honor of Hamilton Naki. In honor of black excellence. Today, his legacy has become political. And when that happens, a myth tends to emerge where there was once a man. So who was Hamilton Naki, the man behind the myth? For one, he was a deeply religious man. Everybody who knew him agrees on that. For example, Rosemary Hickman, Hamilton Naki's colleague and friend. They worked together in the animal lab at the University of Cape Town for over 28 years. When he wasn't busy at the operating table or sorting out the instruments or anything, he used either to sit in the lab or sit in the road outside reading his Bible. He was very strongly religious. And at that time, there was a cemetery behind the lab um, where a number of Berghis lived. And he would gather these people together and tell them about the Bible while he was sitting in the road. Naki was also a family man and an active member of his community. In retirement, he raised money to fix up his local church. He really cared about where he came from. He was very worried about the people who lived where he had come from in Kentani. And because they lived some 60 kilometers from any sort of medical help. And there was little transport, so if they needed to get to a doctor, they worked, walked. 
and he asked if it was possible that we could somehow find funds to, for a mobile clinic. At work, Naki was known as a serious, hard-working man who always dressed impeccably. He was a man who took his job seriously. He came to work dressed in a suit and a tie and a hat and a Bible uh, under his arm. This is Anwar Mal. He is a semi-retired professor who gets really excited about life in general and mucus in particular. I'm a mucus specialist. Mucus is a fascinating substance that lines the stomach and protects it. When he met Naki in 1980, Mal was a postgraduate student. He was sent to assist in the lab and it quickly became clear that Naki was defying the racial stereotypes of the day. But when I walked in there, I saw him all dressed in surgical garb um, over a, an animal that had been that was being operated on. And sta- standing across from him was a surgeon. Now, in my naivety, I assumed that that surgeon, who happened to be white, was performing an operation and being helped by Hamilton Naki. So I walked up to them and suddenly that surgeon did something and Hemi sort of tapped him on the hand and said, I asked you to put the clamp here, not there. And suddenly I was shocked that, you know, who, who's the senior and who's the junior here? Who's the assistant and who's the surgeon? And after that, we just hit it off. It was not just Anwar Mal who was surprised by the work that Hamilton Naki was doing in the animal lab. He was routinely underestimated, and most people were surprised when they realized how Naki was performing complicated surgeries and teaching medical students, not only because he was a black man during apartheid, but also because he had no formal education. Hamilton Naki was born in 1926 in a small rural village called Quintani, in what was then the Transkei and is now the Eastern Cape. He left school after finishing what today is called grade 8. And then, as a teenager, he and a friend hitchhiked all the way to Cape Town to look for work. In the city, Hamilton Naki found a job as a gardener at the University of Cape Town. His job was to look after the tennis courts used by the white students and staff. If Hamilton Naki took a break from his labor, he may have enjoyed the view. From the university on the slopes of Table Mountain, he would have looked out over the city. Closer by, he may have admired the ivy-clad buildings with their red-tiled roofs and imposing columns. To Hamilton Naki, it may well have felt like he was in a different country. Coincidentally, it was someone from another country who drew him from the garden into the lab. Dr. Robert Goetz had left Nazi Germany and ended up in South Africa in the late 1930s. He was tasked with setting up the experimental animal lab where Naki would end up working for the rest of his professional life. And in one day, um, a surgeon, Goetz, needed some assistance on, on carrying an animal and putting it on the table and he looked outside. He saw Hamilton Naki walking by. And he said, could you just give me a hand, please? And Hamilton said, sure, the gentleman that he is. And he, he stayed there for whatever procedure was being done and then was so fascinated by it that he asked to stay. At first, Hamilton Naki cleaned the lab and looked after the animals. But he was a fast learner and soon he was doing much, much more. Here is his colleague, Rosemary Hickman. He would come to work 
And at that time, the instruments were put into boiling water to sterilize them, so he would do that. And then he would lay them out on the trolley, ready for the operation. Sometimes when I was taking the children to school, he would start the operation. When I got there, his knowledge of anatomy that he had gained was such that he would be able to tell me, oh, that vein is different from what it should be, and this artery has got a different branch, and he would name them by their proper anatomical names, which he had just picked up from listening. When asked about his journey from gardener to surgeon, Hamilton Naki used to say, He said, I stole with my eyes. In any society, becoming a surgeon without much formal education is a great accomplishment. As a black man in apartheid South Africa, it was so much harder. I think the main thing that I remember about Hamilton was his dedication. Because um, around about that time there were still riots in Langa and Nyanga. And if there was rioting going on and he was worried about getting home, he would sleep over in the lab. Or else he would go back home early in the afternoon before these rioters had come out and he would leave home at about three o'clock in the morning again so that he avoided the rioters and he, to my knowledge, he never missed a single day in all the years that I worked with him. During his life, it seems, Hamilton Naki was a widely respected man who was not known for causing any trouble. But when he died in 2005, he became the cause of an international controversy in the press. Top international newspapers published sensational obituaries. They claimed that Naki's involvement in the heart transplant was covered up. The Economist wrote that the hospital had made a secret exception because Naki was just that good. And the Spanish newspaper Al País called him El Hero Clandestino. And the reason for the cover-up, they said, was the racism of the past. Then, a few weeks later, many of the newspapers published corrections. The New York Times said what a shame it was that the story appeared to be untrue. And The Economist explained that Naki's role had been gradually embellished in post-apartheid black-ruled South Africa. At this point, you might be thinking... This all sounds a bit like a conspiracy theory. An impression the documentary Hidden Heart about Naki's role in the transplant doesn't dispel. He says, do you know that Chris Barnard didn't do the first heart transplant, but a black man did? If that is true, then we've got a tremendous story. Hamilton was to do the physical work, and Chris used to stand there and say, try this, try this, do this, do that. The film and the obituaries fanned the flames of the controversy. And let's be honest, it is a tempting story. Here's a poor, uneducated black man living in a racist state who manages to rise up the ranks eventually performing one of the most famous surgical operations of the 20th century. This is Anwar Mulligan, seeing his old friend and mentor turning into a story. So he became an example of somebody who can beat all odds, personal, social, political, right? 
uh, racist perceptions. He beat all of that. He achieved something. But now, what happens is, the myth grows around the man. A myth grows around the man. And people who are desperate to say, look, to tell the world that, look, you know, we, 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 we can achieve, we can achieve, they grow the myth. So, when Chris Barnard made a statement somewhere, apparently, that I couldn't have done it without Naki, the statement be, probably became misinterpreted. This is a personal view, right? It became misinterpreted, and people thought he was referring to the actual heart transplant. The idea of the man versus the myth is at the heart of the story. How much of Hamilton Naki is our own post-apartheid projection? And is this the reason that almost 50 years on, Naki is appearing on students' placards? So what is the truth about this story? Was Hamilton Naki there or not? Here's Anwamal again. The night the transplant was done, he was nowhere near the theatre. He didn't even know about it. Those were not even the days of, the, of cell phones. Rosemary Hickman agrees. Any idea that a Hamilton would have been in the operating theatre with Chris Barnard is absolutely, completely ridiculous against the times. There were no black doctors in the hospital at all. There were no black anything. Rosemary believes that the racism of apartheid made it impossible for Naki to be involved in the heart transplant. She explains what it was like back then. In third year, when we studied pathology, looking at illness and the organs, when we attended autopsies, which we had to do, if the person on whom the autopsy was being formed was white, the coloured students were not allowed to come to the autopsy. However, if the pathologist removed the organs from that body and returned it to the fridge, then they were allowed to come. So apartheid reached as, as stupidly as that. But Rosemary and Anwar both spent their whole careers working at the university, a university that they remain loyal to. Surely we can't expect them to deny the official version of the story, but it is there, not only on students' placards, but also much closer to Hamilton Naki himself. Okay, you can sit. I must sit next to you so that I can... We can get the voice on the on the recorder. Okay. So, where do you want to sit? Two of Hamilton Naki's sons, Barnard and Seesway Naki, live in Kailicha on the fringes of Cape Town. It's a sprawling township built during apartheid to house black people who were forcibly removed from the city. Today, it continues to grow, and people live on top of each other, most in small informal houses made out of scrap metal. But some people are a little luckier, living in concrete houses built by the government. Hamilton Naki's sons live in one of these houses. They have built a small shed onto the front of the house to fit more people. Inside, pictures of their father and his awards line the pink walls. It's like an informal Hamilton Naki museum. Later, they will show me a folder of all the documents that they have collected over the years. They have created their very own archive because, as they say, their father has been forgotten. As you, as you can see on this book, it is a team there of a transplant. You never see my father's name it was mentioned, even the face of him. Still, 
is still like this to keep the legs of apartheid flying high, you know. This is Barnard Naki, Hamilton's son. And yes, he was named after his father's celebrated colleague. It's a great name because Chris Barnard is a famous man in the world. But unlike Christian Barnard, the Nakis are not celebrities. So they hold dear those moments when their father has been publicly recognized. For example, when I arrive, they gather the family together in their small lounge. Here, as we settle into our white plastic chairs, they insist on playing an old video. On the screen, we watch as Hamilton Naki receives the order of Mapungubwe in 2002 from then-president Thabo Mbeki. When Naki finally gets called to the stage, they whisper excitedly to make sure that I don't miss the moment. Okay, now? Yeah. So can you tell me what's happening on the screen now? It's now Thabo Mbeki when I give a word now. To to Hamilton Aki. Yeah. Afterwards, they show me their archive. There are photographs, invitations to award dinners, official certificates, Naki's honorary master's degree, a letter to the public protector, and their father's obituaries. But as they point out, these pieces of paper and video recordings only offer so much. We can't eat ours. That is what we say. That's why what we say, this is they are the empty, there's no meaningful without food. For Barnard Naki, there is no doubt that his father was an essential part of the operation. Without my father, there will be no heart transplant. Barnard says that when the reporters arrived that night, his father had to pretend to be a cleaner. So my dad, he do all that before they call the media. And then after that, they say, you, you're not allowed to be among us. So take a broom as then as the people you, you clean there outside this room. So my dad, he watch over the window. But, he says, Dr. Christian Barnard always knew the truth. Chris Barnard, he came to hug. He say, Mr. Nagy, if you was not a black person, you're supposed to be a first man to do the heart transplant because so shameful of the laws of apartheid. For Barnard, the problem is the racism of the past that stubbornly remains today. It is the reason that he thinks his father hasn't been recognized and why he and his family continue to live in poverty. The history must change. We must get conversation. Uh, they must compensate us because this government, they betray my dad. They, they, give, they honor him with the order of Mapungu and then what after that? This month is going to celebrate the Human Rights Day. What the Human Rights Day we must celebrate for? We can't celebrate, we never celebrate the human rights because they are useless for our side as a family. Because to say we celebrate a human rights, what human rights? We don't have a human right. But the family was not there on the night of the first human heart transplant. Deanie Friedman, the heart-lung machine operator from the beginning of the episode, was. He only ever worked in the um, animal theatre. He took no role in the 
first heart transplant whatsoever. In fact, he was at home asleep in his bed. <laughs> Surely Dini would know, having been there that night. But what about the man himself, Dr. Christian Barnard? He was a very capable young man. This is an archival interview. In the original video, he is standing next to the ocean. The noise that you hear in the background are the wind and the waves. I gave him to do more and more and more, and eventually he could do a heart transplant. Although this comment was taken by some journalists as confirming that Hamilton Naki was involved in this famous operation, Barnard doesn't quite confirm or deny his presence. The final smoking gun is, of course, Hamilton Naki himself. Near the end of his life, he claimed in an interview that he had removed the donor heart. Did you physically remove the heart from the first donor? Look, I, I, I remove it. Only because the law of this country, I was not allowed to do it myself. And now I was so happy because now the truth is out. In other words, Hamilton Naki, the man who never missed a day of work and carried a Bible under his arm every day, says he was indeed there. When I started reporting this story, I visited the heart of Cape Town Museum. It is in the old main building at Hrutuskir Hospital. Outside, imposing columns lead up to a red-tiled roof crowned by a statue of Florence Nightingale. Inside, the museum is the actual theatre where the first human heart transplant took place. There, the scenes of the night almost 50 years ago have been meticulously recreated, complete with silicon mannequins dressed in green gowns and surgical instruments from the time laid out on trays next to the operating tables. Also on display are some of the actual hearts removed in these rooms, in glass containers preserved in clear liquid. Sure, another, these are actual hearts here? Yes. Sure. These are the actual hearts. These are the actual hearts that were removed from um, the first uh, recipient, uh, Liu Oshkansky's original heart, um, the heart of the donor patient, uh, and then a man's heart, a normal healthy man's heart, just for comparison purposes. And then we also have the hearts of the second uh, um, recipient, as well as his donor heart, as well as the first the heart of the first female recipient, uh, the original hearts. They're really big. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think people think about how huge hearts actually are. Wandering around the museum, I started feeling pretty creeped out. Really, really realistic. I mean, being in this space kind of gives you, <laughs> gives you makes you feel the tummy churns a little bit. Um, feel like seeing this operation, it's very realistic. Um, yeah, the people, if they were, if they, just because they're standing still is the only thing that makes you realize that it's not real. But there is no silicon copy of Hamilton Naki and no black mannequins at all. 
At this point, I felt sure that this was probably the way the scene looked back then. Not because Naki wasn't good enough to be there, but because of a racist system. All his colleagues had said so. Among them, people who'd been there that night. But then, I went to talk to Portia. Portia is Hamilton Naki's stepdaughter. She may not be Naki's biological daughter, but that doesn't matter to her. He was um, such um, a good dad. He was uh, very loving, a people's person. He loved um, his children. He loved his family and um, he loved generally everyone. He had like such a big heart. Portia lives in the northern suburbs of Cape Town in a small, neat home. Opposite her home is a park. Her young son often plays there, and she likes that she can see him from her lounge. Mommy, panics when I don't see you because I don't know what if you're okay or like something has happened to you. Please don't do that to me. Portia also believes that Hamilton Naki took part in the first human heart transplant because she says he told her so. Um, did he? Do you? Did he ever say to you that he was involved in the operation? That he was there? He did say yes. But um, there's been like a lot of stories going around about that one. So I'm not really sure. <laughs> but he did say he was there. So he said he was there, but you don't know for sure. He did, yes. He, he definitely said that he was there on that um, first transplant. He spoke about that all the time. What did he say about it? Well, um, he told us how he was there when um, the first transplant was done. And um, so we taking what he's telling us. He says he was there, so he was there. We trust him, he wouldn't lie to us. So, uh, yeah, for me, it's like I didn't have any reason to doubt him. I have no reason to think that he was telling a lie. Did he ever say, like, did he ever express that he was, like, bitter about not being recognized at all or not? No, he was, I think it was, for him, it was not about recognition. It was just like uh, taking pride on what he was doing. He really loved his job and he never complained about how... um, unfair it was towards him. So I don't remember him complaining about um, the unfairness of this whole thing. Like I think he was proud about that. So he would um, let us know what um, he can do. And um, he would always say to us, none of you can do like such an important job as I did. I'm not educated, but I can do far more better job than you guys. And like in a funny way, like because he liked to tease us. And I think it was his um, way of encouraging us to um, study further. Naki didn't care about fame. And what the controversy actually does is reduce his memory to a few famous hours and a giant question mark. It focuses on the transplant alone and makes him a prop in the story, regardless of what the truth is. But if we flip this on its head, the transplant becomes a small part of Hamilton Naki's life not the other way around. He always put other people first and uh, it didn't matter what um, he he was doing or who was saying what, but uh, he said, I know what I did, so uh, that's the most important thing uh, for me. I don't need to be recognized for that. And um, it was never about him, really. Like It was about like um, a job that was well done. Knowing his own truth was good enough for Hamilton Naki. Why isn't it good enough for us? As James Baldwin once wrote, history is not the past, it is the present. We carry our history with us, we are our history. 
So maybe the way we remember Hamilton Naki says more about us than it does about him. I've been low, I've been high, I've been sold all my lies. I've got nothing left to pay, I've got nothing left to say. You have been listening to a Sound Africa podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Neroli Price and Rasmus Bits with help from Charlotte Lau, Lars Overland, and Nick Burning. I am Neo Rakajani, and I am here to remind you again that if you like this podcast, share it with the people you like. Sound Africa podcasts are made with support from Open Society and Hindenburg Systems. The Mail and Guardian is our media partner for the Revisit series. What?